Good morning. How's everybody doing? Say louder. <laughs> you don't want me to get louder. Well, good morning. Happy uh, almost Thanksgiving. For those of you uh, who, I, this happens every time. I feel so weird about introducing myself here. So my name is Peter Hartwig. And um, my dad, my dad's the pastor here. And I, uh, I grew up in this church. My parents took over this church in 1997. And uh, I left in 2017 to go on to grad school, which um, given the perfectly round tortoiseshell glasses was a long time coming. And uh, occasionally I get to come back on uh, major holidays or uh, when my parents' separation anxiety gets bad enough. And Occasionally, I also preach while I'm here. Uh, so I'm happy to be here uh, this morning. Why don't we pray, and then we'll talk about Thanksgiving. How does that sound? Pray with me. Um, well, God, only you are God. And that means you can do things that no one else can do. And so we invite your spirit here to be the spirit of the living God for us, for our lives, and for this living community. In the name of Christ, amen. Um, I have, come Thanksgiving, I thought it would be good to talk about thanks and giving. So vaguely, that's our agenda for today. And I've noticed that when it comes to thanks, and maybe you're more authentic people than I am, but I thank people for things that I am not grateful for, and I apologize for things that I am not sorry about. So like... You know when the waiter comes and goes like, enjoy your food, and you go, you too. <laughs> it's, there's just kind of this rhythm to politeness, right? Or like, okay, so I was on the corner, I don't know, it was probably a second year at UVA, and I was standing outside Lemongrass, and I was waiting to go and meet some friends, and I saw this guy walking towards me up the sidewalk, and I was like, that looks like a really old Dave Matthews. And then he got like 10 steps closer, and I was like, oh my gosh, Dave Matthews is so old now. <laughs> and, you know, ants marching. And so ants marched towards me, and I was like, now is my chance. So I called somebody, and it was like, Dave Matthews is walking towards me. We need to have a conversation. This is kind of a setup. And they're like, what? And so... I timed it so that I reached for the door when Dave Matthews reached for the door, and we touched hands. <laughs> I haven't washed this hand since 2014. And I go, oh, I'm sorry, but I wasn't sorry. And Dave Matthews goes, no worries, man. And then I said, no worries to you too, Dave Matthews. <laughs> Why did I do that? I think we have this kind of rhythm of uh, thank yous and your welcomes and I'm sorry's and don't worry about it just because you want people to like us. So like last weekend I went to visit a church in D.C. and the secretary of the lead pastor, she, they reimbursed my travel, which is very sweet because I'm a Poe grad student. And so uh, I had sent on, I had sent over a spreadsheet that had tagline breakfast in it. And what I meant was, this was my ride to breakfast. I need to be reimbursed for the Uber. And she said, where's the breakfast receipt? I said, I didn't buy breakfast. She said, well, there is breakfast. I said, oh, no, no, that's, that was the Uber to breakfast. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. And then I said, no, I'm sorry. But I caught the mistake. You know, I just, but I wanted her to like me. I think so much of what we do in this kind of like little rhythm of politeness is on a level above genuine. It's just because we want people to like, like us. 
And so maybe a bit of our cultural language of gratitude is shallow. And at its worst, I wonder if it can get a little coercive. So I, I don't know what your parents were like, but you might have started off with phrases like, after all I've done for you. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. No, I, uh, I never heard that. But um, I, I actually think that the virtue of gratitude in our culture can be a way of holding other people down. So in the 60s, when people started to fight for civil rights, just on the basis of the color of their skin, the way to make sure that everybody thought Martin Luther King Jr. was a rabble rouser and not somebody uh, doing God's work was to say that he was ungrateful. Gratitude is a way, can be a way, to keep people down who are already down. It's sort of funny. Um, I, it's been this way for a long time. I studied classics and culture because I'm interested, obviously, in the New Testament. And in the Oxford Classical Dictionary on ancient gift giving, this is what it says. At all periods of ancient Greek history, gift exchange differed sharply from exchanges such as trade, conduct outside the context of amiable relationships. I know that's a bit much, but here's really the punchline. In trade, in business, the change was short-term, self-liquidated transaction, generating neither binding relationships nor moral involvement. Within the context of friendly relationships, a gift was not merely meant to pay off a past a gift or device, but to render the recipient indebted and thus set going a reciprocity mechanism. Gifts served a multitude of purposes. They repaid past services, created new obligations, and acted as continual reminders that you owe me something. Gift exchange differed from trade uh, in, in that the exchange of goods was not primarily the object of the transaction. Which is to say that even in the period in which the New Testament was written, there was this idea that if I'm good to you, and kind to you, and give you a gift, until the day one of us is dead, I can say, after all I've done for you, how could you talk to me that way? I think that what's common to all of this, to the ancient way gifts were given, to the modern way gifts were given, to our kind of funny, shallow way of thanking people, and I think it's the belief that our relationships are basically contracts that I give you something and then you give me something and once we're even, we're pretty much good. But as long as I can have more given to you than you've got to me, or as long as you've got more given to me than I've got to you, it's a bit of an imbalance there. I had a friend in high school that used to keep track to the scent of everything I owed him. Oh, gosh. And that's why I don't keep track of what people owe me anymore. It's because I know what it's like to, in a relationship, have somebody counting what you owe. And I even think this has found its way into some of our theology, if I'm being honest. I think a lot of us think that a relationship with God is more or less a contract with God. And so I'd like to bring our attention to a place in the New Testament where God reveals in a story the fact that relationship with God is not about a contract. It's really about community. It's really about the way relationships exist together, not because of what you can give me or what you owe me, but just because of who you are. So, if you would, turn with me to Luke, the 15th chapter, the well-known parable of the prodigal son. 
I'm going to set this up instead of reading the whole thing. In case you don't know it, basically here's the story. A father has two sons. There's an older one and a younger one. And the older one's like a good youth group kid. Like he's stable and his grades are fine, solid. And if you ask him to wash the dishes, he'll probably go ahead and wash the dishes. And the younger son, he's got an edge on him. And they've been worried since preschool that he's not going to do well on the SATs. And he, um, he looks at his father one day and he goes, why don't you just give me what you're going to owe me when you're dead? And then I'll kind of buzz off. And uh, no harm, no foul, old man. Now, that's emotionally a little rough now. But in the ancient world, it is quite literally saying, it would be better for me if you were dead. And the illusion is, is that being his father's son is primarily a financial contract. Being his son means eventually he's going to get this lump sum of money. And it's significant money for what that's worth. And so, he says, why don't we just settle the contract now, and I'll live my life, and you live yours, and, uh, you know, no harm, no foul. So he takes the money, and he runs off to a foreign land. And the Greek word for that transaction, it says the father gave him his being. It says wealth in English, but in Greek it says being. He cuts out a little part of himself, basically, and hands it to this kid who runs off, and uh, he probably spends the money on making friends. It's what you did in ancient culture. You would throw parties, and by food, you'd pick up the tab, you'd cover the tip, I'll pay for the Uber or the Lyft, it's fine. They'll even get you UberX, you know? So, wow. And so people more or less buy friends. And a famine hits, as it always does. There's a downturn in the economy, there's a crash. And the kid finds himself in a pretty embarrassing job for a Jewish kid, which is feeding pigs. And then he thinks to himself, it was better in dad's house, wasn't it? It's not like, oh, I've done wrong and I'm so horrible and I should have been this. It's just, I remember when it used to be better. And so he, he comes up with this little speech. And uh, this is what he says. He comes up with this little speech while he's sitting amongst the pigs. And it goes like this. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, saying to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, which is to say, I'll pay it back. You hire me, and I'll make up the debt. But while he was still a long way off, the text says, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Modern readers of the New Testament who are raised in the Middle East, this is the point of the story that they can't swallow. And they can't swallow it because in ancient Near Eastern culture and to some extent in modern Near Eastern culture, grown men do not run. It is beneath them. They've made it. They can pay people to run. You want to run? I'll give you a tip. You go run for me. I'm not running. But this father is evidently watching so intensely the horizon that when the boy is a long way off, he hits the ground running, and he picks up his robes, assumedly, and books it out of town. In, uh, in modern and in ancient Near Eastern culture, the most embarrassing show of flesh besides total nudity is to show your shins. It's a sign of weakness. And so the father humiliates himself, all for the love of this boy. 
And so he runs into the desert, and he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. The word compassion here, he had compassion on his son is literally the word for guts. It means he felt all torn up. You know that feeling when you lose your kid in Kmart, and for some reason your immediate reaction is just to throw up? I don't have kids, by the way. But I hear from my married friends that it hits you like right here. That's what he feels. And so he gets to the boy, and then the boy starts talking. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what should come next is, take me back as one of your hired hands, I'll pay the debt. But the father cuts in and said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. What the kid doesn't realize Say, you're not a son by worth, you're a son by birth. I, I was largely uninvolved in my own birth. Pete and Fran had this idea after they were all, you know, happy, sweet, and in love, and then I came into the world. I didn't ask for this. It was just a gift that happened to me. There's nothing I can do to make myself more their son or less their son, for better or for worse. It is what it is. And so this father throws a party to celebrate the fact that this is still his kid. He's still his boy. He could take all the money he has, he'd still be a son. It's not about the money. And the funny thing is, is the older son who stayed home and went to a good state school, he also thinks it's about the money. So it says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what's going on. And the servant goes, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother was elated. No, of course not, because he's an older brother. You know how hard 1997 was for me when Allie was born? <laughs> so his father went, uh, and became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him and humiliates himself again. So he got to leave his own party to go out to humiliate himself to get this other kid back in the house. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, which is a great party, a goat. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, which is not at all clear how he would know that, so now he's just slinging mud, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. It's the money again. The kid is slaving because he thinks he has to stay home and play nice for the money. They both think it's about cash, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is pretty much the best gospel you're going to get. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you owe God. Maybe you're the type that says, I've wandered from the Lord, and you walked your way and you turned your back on church. Or maybe you're in that in-between phase where you're waiting until just before grad school to get back to church when you're stable, you want to settle down. Or, or maybe you're the person who's never left. You're the older brother. You got good spiritual grades. You know what I mean? And uh, you can quote Bible in sort of funny ways. Ah, you know. But the mistake that both of us have the older brother and the younger brother is the belief that it's about anything else than who you are. 
God loves you. We say that a lot, but it is true. God just loves you. I think it's just worth saying again this morning, if you don't know, that the heart of the gospel is the idea that just because you are who you are, and remember, you had very little to do with that, God humiliates himself on the cross in Jesus Christ just to get near you, just to take you home. I don't know if maybe you feel like God's been hunting you down for a while or if you've never heard what we Christians call the gospel before, but that's basically it. God is running out to you, ran out to you in Jesus Christ, runs out to you in the spirit just to bring you home. If you want that, talk to me afterwards. But that's a wonderful theological vision. And trust me, I love theology. I am knee-deep in theology. And uh, I'm told constantly that theologians are not practical. Excuse me. So I thought, on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, we could watch this grace of God get real practical. Like, uncomfortably practical. I'm here to ask you for money. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So turn with me to the 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where Paul starts asking for money. St. Paul, if you don't know him, was a voracious writer of letters. It seems like he was writing them constantly, and he wrote a great deal of the New Testament. He never met Jesus, except in this crazy vision where he, like, falls off a horse on the side of the road, and Jesus is like, why are you persecuting me? And then he gets 14 years where they kind of keep him in the barrel, and then about 14 years after his conversion, he starts going out and telling people about Jesus. And um, he's, had, he's planted this church in the town of Corinth, which is a big deal, Corinth. This letter is probably written in the early 50s AD. And in 44 BC, um, Corinth had basically been taken over by Rome. There was this political league in Greece called the Achaean League, and it fell apart. And Augustus kind of swooped in and did the thing Augustus did. And uh, he repopulated Corinth in 44 BC as a Roman colony, mostly with freed slaves. Freed slaves and poor people. That's who was sent to Corinth. And they've had about 100 years to make it, and they have made it. Corinth has become this economic center of the ancient world because it's the quickest way to get from east of Greece to west of Greece. You go through Corinth and you ship everything from Turkey to Italy. So they're making good money. And Paul's shown up there and he's planted this church. And for a good chunk of his career, a major part of what St. Paul has vowed to do is to send money back to the poor church in Jerusalem. There's a bunch of poor folk in Jerusalem, and they're mostly Jewish Christians, and Paul is collecting money from Gentiles, from churches in Macedonia, in Rome, in Corinth, and sending it back to the Jerusalem church as a sign, amongst other things, of solidarity between Jews and Gentiles. Because that's really Paul's big thing. The thing he figured out that nobody was really figuring out is that because of Jesus, God's people isn't just Jews anymore. And so as a financial act of solidarity, He collects money from Achaia and Macedonia, and he sends it back. And so we're going to take a look at Paul's big fundraising ask now. Uh, It's all of chapters 7, 8, and 9, but we're just going to read a couple key chunks, and uh, I want to share a few thoughts. So uh, chapter 8, verse 1, reads like this. Now, brothers and sisters, 
We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That's a little bit north and a little bit east in Greece. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even more than they were able, honestly. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then also by the will of God to us. So we urge Titus, just as he has earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. And since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the eagerness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you may, through his poverty, become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have desired to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desires is not that others um, may be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Your translation might have fairness. At the present time, your plenty will supply, supply what they need, so that in their turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Here's the big vision behind this. The big vision is that by an act of God, communities have been springing up all around the Mediterranean that are interconnected around this gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an act of God doing this. It's not just a social movement, it's a divine move. The divine is on the move and communities are springing up and they're starting to support each other. And Paul is trying to get the Corinthians in on it. And as far as I can tell, he's got a couple talking points as to why they should seriously consider the proposal. The first talking point I think is, other Christians are doing it. It's what all the cool kids are doing. Giving money is what all the swinging cats are up to these days. I don't know about you, but it's the moments where I hear other churches who are really doing the work that makes me feel like I can do the work too. I think the second talking point is God's doing it. If it's not good enough for you that all your friends and neighbors are doing it, God is doing it. God became poor so that you could become rich. I don't think any of us have been to heaven. If you've got one of those books, give me a ring. Be your publicist. But if you've stayed on this side of heaven, all you can basically assume is that it's probably pretty great there. And the second person of the Trinity looks around heaven and goes, this is a lot of fun, but it's kind of no fun without anybody here. And so he gives it all up, and the word of God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ, and he just becomes another walking rabbi. Nobody has ever woke up one day and thought, the life I want to lead is as a first century Jewish carpenter under Roman oppression. 
You know, like I wake up a couple months a year and I think I should have been born in the 20s. But Jesus decides to send himself to one of the least sexy times of history so that you can become rich. God has also done it. I think the third point he wants to say is because other people are doing it and God has done it, it's on you to make it real. The grace of God has been poured out in Jesus Christ. And it's been offered to Christians almost as like their own version of the incarnation. God is funding these Christian communities with his love and his spirit and his power. And the call is to make that real to other people. I've got a New Yorker cartoon. Is that going to go up? Yeah. The dream of the unpublished author. I'm a huge fan of your intentions. I think a lot of the church has been the unpublished church. We talk a really good talk about love. But talk about love isn't any good to people who are suffering. Talk about love is great, but if Jesus doesn't actually make himself poor, you and I are pretty well stuck. There's a call in the motion of Jesus, in the act of God, to make real again what was made real in Jesus. Other Christians are doing it. God did it. You get to do it too. There's this call to be the real hands and feet of Jesus. Your Venmo ought to look like Jesus. Your grocery receipt ought to look like Jesus. Who's been in your car and the guest list on your coffee table and who you've decided to put on your iCal? You got to make it real. God makes it real in Jesus, and you've got a whole life to make it real too. You get to be the hands and feet of God for somebody else. Now, I know that that sounds weirdly difficult. You're supposed to be God for somebody else. But here's the good news in chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. God's the one who's going to make it possible. Chapter 9, verses 6 to 15, read like this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, which is to say God is going to make it so that you can be generous. I think most times when we think about how God is going to act in our lives and there's a fundamental truth that God blesses, God is the God of blessing. I think we start to interpret that as God's going to make sure that I'm okay. What I think this text is calling us to see is that God's going to make sure you're okay so that you can make sure somebody else is okay. God, get, God does to you what God wants to do through you. It's true. God's going to make sure that you've got the money, not so that you've got the money, but that's so you've got the money to give. And the act of faith in the middle of that is to trust that God's not going to forget you while God is also thinking about the community. In my experience of the Christian life, that's been the challenge of faith. It's not just that God's going to take care of me, but it's that God's going to take care of me while I'm taking care of other people. Um, This is just one thought in closing, and I would like to invite the worship team to come up. If God's going to take care of me 
while I'm taking care of other people. That means my relationships, they're not going to be contracts. I'm not going to give some to God so that God gives some to me to. If what you're seeing in your head when you think about God's blessing is vectors of money, God gives to you and then you give it over there and you pass it through. I think you might be imagining it wrong. What I think God wants us to see is in our heads a community full of God's grace, full of God's love. When we think about giving and gratitude and thankfulness, I think the punchline here, the vision that Paul is driving to us is a vision of a community. If you don't have the community, everything Paul says is just kind of like squirrely fundraising tactics. Other people are doing it. God's doing it. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for them. If you give money, God will take care of you. Don't worry about it. But what's really going on here is Paul is calling the Corinthians in his second letter to them to see the church in the Mediterranean as an act of God, a community of which they get to be a part. This was brought home to me when I tried to do a word study on Thanksgiving. I know we all love word studies and sermons, and I had previously come here prepared to give you one of those. Now, I was taught that mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve, and grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve, and Thanksgiving is what you're supposed to give back. But as I went through the passage and I tried to sort those words out, you know what was funny? The words kind of got away from me. This is nuts. But the word for Thanksgiving in this passage is Eucharistion. Uh, oh no, the Greek word didn't translate. Never mind. Um, the word up there for grace in Greek is charis. And the word for Thanksgiving is Eucharistion. The word for grace is in the word for Thanksgiving. And if you go to this passage and you try to start bringing them out, the word grace pops up everywhere. God has an act of grace. Remember when the Macedonians urgently begged for the privilege of being able to give? The word privilege is the word grace. When God, when at the end of this passage, Paul thanks God for the unspeakable gift, the thanks is grace. What God calls us to in thanksgiving is not gratitude and mercy and grace and contracts. It's actually a community of grace where God has acted first to bless and to give, to pour out His grace so that we can also act to bless and to give and pour out His grace on behalf of other people. So this Thanksgiving, when you think about this coming week, I personally seriously want to challenge you to make this real. One final story. When I was uh, working here in the 20s ministry, which we called Transit, a couple people came to me and said, can we find, uh, we don't have anything to do for Thanksgiving. I said, we'll find you some families to go with. And then more people wanted in on that. Four, five, six, seven, eight people wanted to find families placed with. And at that point, I said, well, why don't we just do a Friendsgiving? The eight of us will get together. So we pitched that and everybody said no. No one wanted to be with other lonely 20-somethings. They wanted to be with families on Thanksgiving. I want to challenge you to be that family. I would like to give you the challenge there should be somebody at your Thanksgiving table that you didn't give birth to, that you're not related to, that didn't give birth to you and isn't related to your mom. There should be somebody at your Thanksgiving table who otherwise wouldn't have anywhere to go. If you think of it as giving them turkey and giving them a home and giving it, you're missing the point. 
When they show up at your Thanksgiving table, your Thanksgiving table becomes the grace of God. And that's something worth being grateful for. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that 2,000 years ago that you came from the word in heaven to be the word made flesh and that you made real and flesh and blood and bone the love of God, that your life was the humiliation of the Father on our behalf, that he was willing to run into a far country and into the desert to go get us. Jesus, we have been saved by that grace and we have been claimed by that God And it's not anything we did, and it's not everything we gave, but it's just the fact that we're your kids, and you love us. So Jesus, we're grateful for the home that you're going to give us one day, and we open ourselves up to make that home real on earth as it is in heaven. This Thanksgiving week in Charlottesville in 2018, God, the greatest thrill we have is to see you at work. And so we ask as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, that you would be at work in us. You're the one who, when you walk into the room, it becomes a different room. Be in our rooms this week, Jesus. Be at our tables, be in our families. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.